Recovery Elevator, episode 87. I just want to feel different in my head. You know, I, I can't say no. I just go for it. And then, and then however much I drink was never enough. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years, three weeks, and six days. On today's podcast, we've got Kenny. He's getting his master in stats, and he's been sober since 4-13. That's April 13th, 2015. Now, if you like the Recovery Elevator podcast and you like to shop, and if you're listening to this podcast, I think I just covered about 95% of people, unless it's a fabric store for myself, then you can help us. If you shop on Amazon, use the link recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon, and Recovery Elevator will get a small percentage of purchases made through that link. The topic for today is why did alcohol stop working for me? And I know I'm not the only one where alcohol stopped working for. A lot of people I've interviewed has said the alcohol eventually stopped working. If it still works for you, well, spoiler alert, it's eventually going to stop working for you too. I'd always wondered why the Paul Churchill, the cheap date who could have three Bud Lights playing beer pong would be completely wasted. Fast forward 10 years, when I was bartending at my bar in Spain, I was able to do power hour, not with the traditional shot of beer every minute, with a shot of sangria, and then I could work a full shift after that. I'm probably consuming 30 to 40 alcoholic drinks a night. Seems like a lot, I know. It is. It's a shitload of booze. I was functioning, don't remember any of it, I blacked out every night, but why did the alcohol eventually stop working? I needed more and more of it to fill the same effects, aka the pleasure. Well, there's a reason for it, and let's dive further deeper into that. Okay, so we know that alcohol increases cravings in the brain by releasing dopamine. Now, dopamine used to thought to be responsible for the pleasure, but dopamine is actually the learning chemical in the brain. Again, dopamine is responsible for learning in the brain, not pleasure. So rather than giving us pleasure, dopamine teaches us where to find pleasure. Now, finding pleasure is key to the evolution of humans. We need to find heat fire. We need to find food. We need to find Pop-Tarts. We need to find shelter. All the above. Now, after we have found pleasure, thousands of years ago, it was when we found those items that I just mentioned. Fast forward to these days, I found pleasure by simply tipping a bottle back and drinking. So, for the brain, for the body to maintain a homeostasis, for a way for the body to protect itself, the brain will turn down the pleasure received from alcohol over time. Now, let's talk about the over time. That time period can be very long. It can be drawn out over decades for some, and for some it can be within weeks, months of their first drink. Now this is kind of like the song Gangnam Style that came out a couple years ago. First time I heard that, I was like, wow, this is the best song I've ever heard. Wait, there's a dance to it? You bet your ass I'm going to learn that. Now when I hear that song, I want to drive my car straight into a brick wall. So how does our brain, a beautiful system that's kept us alive millions of years, how does it do this? Well, the brain produces another chemical called dynorphin, which turns down the stimulation. Damn that beautifully evolved mechanism called the human body. So I've learned that myself, Paul Churchill, I have enhanced dopamine receptors. Two, three, four, five thousand years ago, this was a huge asset. I would have been one to evolve, unless that involved me riding horses. I'm extremely allergic to horses, probably wouldn't have made it too far in life. Or in the time of the Oregon Trail, there's not a chance I would have migrated west in a covered wagon led by horses. East Coast? Yeah, that place would have been just fine for me. Many neurologists, including Professor Polk, say this. Consider what happens to an alcoholic when they repeatedly, over time, stimulate the brain with alcohol. 
The brain will continue to turn down the overstimulation, and over time, the alcoholic will feel less pleasure from the drug. Alcohol. The booze, the way it makes us feel, it won't be as rewarding. The alcoholic will require more and more alcohol to get the same level of reward. And of course, that is exactly what I personally did while drinking. I needed more and more alcohol to feel the same effect. And eventually, I got to a real shitty spot where I needed alcohol just to feel normal. Spoiler alert again, if you are drinking and you're not to that point yet, most alcoholics, they get to a point where they need alcohol simply to feel normal. I've been there. I've lived that. It's exhausting. It's no fun. I don't recommend it. So when your brain chemistry changes, this is what's called hypersensitivity. Your brain becomes hypersensitive to alcohol. You're going to need more and more of it to get the same effect. This is an evolutionary mechanism to help us evolve. Dr. Wolfram Schultz says, an adaptive organism must be able to predict future events, such as the presence of mates, food, danger, and Pop-Tarts. I'm just kidding. He didn't say the Pop-Tarts part. But he's talking about an adaptive species. Human beings, we've been around for a while. We've been through a lot of stuff. We are an adaptive species. The pleasure centers in our brain need to be turned down. Therefore, for us to evolve, we will continue to seek out pleasure. The difference, the pleasure we should be seeking is more food, water, shelter, and cinnamon-flavored Pop-Tarts. I still think it's so fascinating that my genetic makeup, two, three, four, five thousand years ago, it was an asset. Right now, it's kind of backfiring, but that's okay. And actually, let me correct my statement. It backfired up until September 7, 2014. But right now, I'm kicking ass and taking names, unless I have to do that while on a horse. So in your brain, this produces small, ever slow changes of neuroadaptations in the neural system, creating an environment of hypersensitivity. So this hypersensitive dopamine system creates cravings for alcohol that can occur separately from liking booze? What the hell does that mean? Well, what that means is we eventually start craving the alcohol despite the fact that we want to drink alcohol because we like it. We become dependent on it. We need it. We have to have it. Regardless, when we face strong negative consequences, such as losing a job, a spouse, or a bar in Spain. And in Recovery Elevator episode 88, we're going to talk about the changes that alcohol has done to our brain. Are they reversible or not? But at this time, let's hear from Kenny. Kenny, how are you? Hey, I'm awesome. How are you doing, Paul? Kenny, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this, Kenny. How long have you been sober? I've been sober since April 3rd of 2015, so about a year and a half. April 3rd, 2015. Nice job. And before we get any further, let's learn more about you, Kenny. Tell us maybe where you're from, how old you are, what do you like to do for fun, what you do for a living, things like that. So I'm 27 years old. I grew up in a little farm town in Northern California and then spent 15 or so years in Riverside in Southern California. I decided it was too hot and dry there, so I moved to Montana a couple of years ago for grad school. So now I'm a PhD student in statistics and I also I do some consulting. And outside of school and work, I like to work on my truck and build bikes and computers and just go wander around in nature and get lost in the wilderness. Nice, man. And let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. So talk to me about what led you up to make the decision to quit drinking. My elevator had a long, slow descent with a lot of bumps towards the bottom. But I mean, it, it started, well, I mean, doesn't everyone's, but it's, it started with just roommates saying, hey, you you drink too much. You're kind of a liability and you should tone it down. And, you know, that kind of stuff didn't get across to me. But I think it was last last March, 
I one day I just missed my uh, classes because I was too drunk and <laughs> get up and go. And you know that sounds like something that should happen all the time to college students. But in you know all my many years of, of that I've just stayed in school, that, that had never happened. At the time, I was a grad student with a with a teaching assistantship and started thinking, you know, if what if I missed a class that I was supposed to teach and let all these kids down? And so, yeah, I just had a, a big eye-opening moment when I realized that, yeah, this isn't all about me. I have to think of other people in my life. Yeah, because you can you miss know, class as a student, yeah. right? But imagine yeah, if you're the professor, you're the teacher assistant, you know, like, hey, uh, you know, Mr. Kenny, where were you yesterday? Oh, guys, <laughs> it was a Super Bowl. I yeah. got blacked out the other night, <laughs> exactly. and sorry, my bad. And, and Kenny, yeah. that reminds me of, sto- of a story in my senior year at Chapman University. It, it was kind of, you know, when when I became a problem drinker, where I had a drinking problem, it was a very slow process, just like your elevator you just described. It wasn't a quick descent. It was a long, slow, bumpy ride. But my tolerance slowly yeah. went up and up and up. And I remember I was in, like, this, this classroom. And it was like a 10 a.m. class, stadium seating. And this guy, Matt Greco at Chapman University, I played football with him. He turns around, and he's like, dude, where was the party last night? And all he was doing was just smelling my <laughs> breath. And, you know, Uh, my my tolerance just was growing over year, over the years to the point, you know, I was in class and I was like, Matt, what are you talking about last night, man? Uh, You know, actually what I said was like, oh yeah, it's pretty good. I actually made up a party. Um, but what I was doing, I drank by myself. (laughs) I was like doing homework. Well, I never made up a party. I was, I never really, uh, wanted to pretend that I had a social life, but yeah, I got through. <laughs> wait, wait, college. you're you're getting a PhD in stats and you don't have a social life. This is this is just shocker, mind-boggling. Right? <laughs> I guess I should back up even farther and just say kind of what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Like. Yeah, my and, and Kenny, actually, I tell mean, me like how much did you drink, and then did you ever try to put <laughs> rules in place? You know, your roommates are like, "Hey, Kenny, you're becoming a liability." You're like, all right, I'm only drinking Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. That's it. Well, I mean, it it started when I was like 21 or so, and and was just so excited that I could finally buy my own liquor, and and I realized it, it kind of helped me get my math homework done. I needed needed to cut down those barriers of thinking in more abstract ways than I was used to, and so I'd have like a gin and tonic or two nightly, you know, whenever I needed to get stuff done, and kind of built up from there. To a few years later, I was I would drink like half a fifth of of brandy in one afternoon just because I didn't have anything else to do and it sounded like fun. And, now, is brandy I mean, a stats thing? Is like all your alumni and, and, and statistics, is brandy their drink or is that just your drink? I, I always thought it was just mine. I don't know anyone else. I don't yeah, think neither, I've ever known anyone else. Neither do like I. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm asking. I'm like, oh, maybe it's a statistics thing. That's funny. Yeah, I don't want to get into that because I don't really know why I did a lot of what I did. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, so you started doing, you drinking while doing homework. You kind of, you know, relaxed, maybe took out the, the fear, the self doubt. I can't do this maybe, but that gradually yeah. progressed into something else, right? Into, yeah. Where I was, you know, still hungover or just drunk in class the next morning. And this was back in community college when it got started. Eventually I transferred to a, a university and fell in with a group of, of partier students and, didn't really want to hang out and be social, but it was a good excuse to, to go drink a lot. And, you know, my my tolerance first went way up, and eventually it came back down to where it would only, uh, 
five drinks for me to just completely black out and wake up on a strange couch and not really know what I had done the night before. But, you know, that never seemed like a problem to me because if I didn't do anything anything horrible or at least if I didn't remember it, you know, it didn't happen, right? <laughs> and I, it just seemed like only my problem and I didn't see it as much of a problem. I did have like some friends and those roommates that I mentioned occasionally tell me to tone it down or, or you know, for a, a while there I decided like, hey, I'm a I'm an alcoholic, but I'm a functional alcoholic. Yeah. So, and what was your response you know, though the first couple of times your your roommate said that to you? Hey Kenny, we think you got a drinking problem. What was your response? Uh it was basically just so what? I like to drink. We disagreed about whether it was a problem. Yeah, you're like, Hey, throw on Animal House. I'm just doing what you're supposed to do while you're in college. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, and so I did. I did eventually come up with some schemes. Like when I talked to my best friend about it, she for a little while had me think like maybe I should actually tone it down. And so I was supposed to call her and stay accountable whenever I felt like like drinking. And you know, that that didn't work. It just led to me lying to my best friend about what I was doing and how much I was drinking. And, Accountability. I was like, "Oh wow, my sobriety is based on accountability, but it doesn't work when you you're not honest with your best friend." Exactly. And you know that really just made me feel feel worse and be more and more dishonest and be more lying. So my next scheme that almost kind of worked was maybe I shouldn't say almost worked, but it felt like it for a little bit. I got this little notebook and decided, okay, if I can't be accountable to other people, maybe I can be accountable to myself. So I would write down Brilliant like, thinking, whenever Kenny. I got a craving. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've done all this. I'm not making fun of you. I've done all this. No, so yeah. keep going, though. No, I mean, we've all got similar stories to this one. And, yeah. But I mean, I was just so proud of myself. I would say if I felt like I should drink, I should write down a good reason not to. Like, like oh, I'm, I've got some dinner with a, a friend later and I want to make sure I'm there and coherent and that kind of stuff. And it's, so it sounds almost like a that, gratitude yeah. notebook, which is a little too late. Is it something like that? You're like, you know, yeah. what am I thankful for? Give me a reason not to drink is usually something you're thankful for. That's a great, <laughs> great tool, great strategy. Um, but yeah, usually I've, I've, I like this. I've, I've heard this strategy done in the morning when you first wake up and you kind of write a bunch of things you're grat- you have gratitude for, but keep going with your scheme. And I love the yeah, way well, you're using the word scheme. Well, it wasn't part of any of like a bigger recovery program. It was me just doing the first thing that came to mind and you know, that doesn't always work out great. And it really started out maybe as a gratitude thing, but it kind of turned into just tearing myself down, telling me how bad it felt. Oh, (laughs) your addiction started guiding the pen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I also started using it just as an an excuse. I, I thought, well, if I write down and acknowledge that this is a bad idea, then it's okay if I go and and get him tonight. Yeah. yeah. It it didn't help at all. Acknowledging the craving is is actually a pretty big step there. And, you know, the next bigger step is accepting the craving and drinking. So so talk to me more about the elevator. You said earlier it wasn't just like a fast ascent. Somebody snipped at the cable. It was like a slow, bumpy ride down. What was that like? Well, so I already mentioned my first, real eye-opening uh, moment of the first time that I actually uh, was too drunk to go to go to class. I mean, I felt pretty horrible and embarrassed just because I've been conditioned to you know, think, uh, I'm, a, I'm a student, I'm very studious, I should 
do that. But so I was talking to my newer roommate. She had just moved in a few months earlier. And so what started to help was she said that her dad had turned his life around in N.A. and gone and become a, an addiction counselor. And she just suggested I give him a call. And so I, I did. And I was just amazed at the way we, we connected. Like he completely understood that when I when I want something, like I just want to feel different in my head, you know, I, I can't say no, I just go for it. And then, and then however much I drink was never enough. And, and so, I mean, that was just amazing because I'd never had a conversation like that before. Kenny, but, you said something yeah. very important right there that I want to touch base on before we move further. You said, I want to feel something different in my head. And then you said, you know, I, I can't have enough, which sounds like one drink is too much and a thousand is not enough. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was almost going to say that, but I try to avoid cliches, but <laughs> that I mean, that's one, a perfect that one. one like. that but and tell me more. What was that feeling in your head? And I know it perfectly, Kenny. It's, it's <laughs> the feeling you, you just want to feel different, right? I've always had trouble describing it, but I mean, it's, it's like I, I can be sitting there at work or in, in class or something and doing whatever I need to be doing and just thinking, man, life sucks because well, I don't even know why it sucked. It just, you know, I would have to feel whatever I was thinking about. If I drank, I could just, I could numb that for a bit. That but, is great dialogue right there, Kenny. If I drank, I could just numb that for a bit. We've all seen Office Space. Sounds like a case of the Mondays. Yeah. Kenny, I yeah. had those same feelings in my head, but yesterday I had a case of the Wednesdays. You know? And, oh, I know. Well, I've also had a case of the Sundays. Well, every day is a Monday. The right? Fridays, the Tuesdays, the Mondays. Yeah, yeah, every day. It's just random days. I have those days too where, man, even if I'll feel worse, I still want to do something. That's kind of where the chewing tobacco came yeah. in. When I first started, I would, I would oh, chew to, chewing tobacco and I would just feel way worse, but I felt different than my previous state of mind. Yeah, exactly. And so what was it like when you first quit drinking? Was that your first attempt on April 3rd, 2015, or did you previously have attempts before that? Well, I mean, my little notebook came before then, but that was my first serious attempt. Uh, I had, I think I probably white knuckled it a couple times for maybe a month or two without really thinking about seriously trying. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was my first real attempt after I, after I, uh, talked to my roommate's dad, well, he was talking about his 12 step program and kept bringing up God and his higher power and that turned me off, but he did convince <laughs> me to, a lot of yeah, people, that Kenny. yeah, I mean, at that point I had always thought religion has no place in my life. But, um, anyways, he convinced me to, talk to a local counselor and that counselor gave me another spin on AA uh, and he, he said you know it's a bunch of it's a bunch of anarchist badasses and it's really cool how it's like a grassroots movement and things so then I was like okay maybe that's something worth worth checking out yeah I can get behind so I went that to a few meetings yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so I went to a few meetings and you know my my first thoughts were well these People definitely know what I'm feeling, but I'm not sure I really belong here because there were people there with multiple DUIs in prison time, and I had never been in that much trouble. And kind of thought, you know, hey, I'm maybe I'm not done having fun. But <laughs> so yeah, so I wasn't quite ready to to actually turn my life over, but I decided to to test it. So this was actually we haven't actually gotten to April 3rd yet. So what happened on April 3rd or 
it was the second, and I'm terrible with dates. Sometime around that, that weekend, there was a party, and I thought, well, you know, compared to all these people that I just met, I'm, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, so I'm going to go see if I can drink one drink at this party and just enjoy myself and then go home. And that you did that, and, just that, right? One drink and done. Uh-huh. Hey, guys, this is the best oh, stats yeah, party totally. I've ever one been to. No. Balloons, confetti, <laughs> awesome. Calculators, sweet. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I made that first drink last for like an hour and a half, which blew my mind. I was so happy with myself that when someone said, hey, let's do shots, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And next thing I know, it was the next morning and I'm waking up on my couch and don't remember much. But one thing that I do remember, though, was I was talking to a, f- a friend of mine just about our the research that we wanted to do. And I was just thinking, man, my head hurts. And we are both struggling to put together coherent sentences. Why do we do this? This isn't fun anymore. And so that's when I decided that I was going to give AA a serious shot. And so the next morning when I came to on their couch, I was like, well, pretty sure there's a meeting happening in like an hour. Let's go. What was the first meeting like? So that meeting, it was, it was great. I just admitted what had happened the previous night and, and everyone was just really welcoming and they're like yeah I've been there and after that that meeting someone needed help moving to a new apartment and so they got a big group of people together from the meeting to go to help him and that that fellowship just blew my mind all these alcoholics and addicts standing together and supporting each other and it was fantastic community that I had no idea existed before and and that's really the fulcrum behind that is a being of service. It's the community. It's the fellowship. Yeah. You want to help somebody move out of their apartment, their condo. It's awesome. That's really cool stuff. Now, are you still involved in AA, Kenny? Now walk, yeah, walk me through a typical day in, in your recovery and how you stay sober. Yeah, so a typical day nowadays, I usually get up at like 4 or 4.30. <laughs> I know, crazy early then. Just realized I'm a morning person when I'm not. Are we talking AM right now? Or <laughs> yeah. Jesus, yeah, AM. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I just like I just like being up before the sun, and uh, I mean I'll have a nice big breakfast and a relaxed shower, and then usually head to school a bit before six. And before it gets too late in the winter, I can I'm riding my bike there as the sun's coming up, and it's just wonderful. And so then I spend my day just working on my school and work tasks and around four or five if I'm done I'll head home and take dinner and then in the evenings I'll I try to meditate for 15 minutes or so and also play my guitar what does the meditation Um, look like and then we'll ask if you can play stairway to heaven (laughs) I have been just working on mindfulness and trying to clear my mind and just be aware of what's going on inside my body and what's going on or not going on inside my mind. How do you do that? Do you tap with your finger on different parts of your body, like tap on your kneecap, tap on your ear, tap on your head? I haven't tried that. Oh, I I'm just, kidding. I don't think um, that works. But... Focus on my, oh, I don't know. People have thrown out all kinds of crazy yeah, true. things. Um, <laughs> I just close my eyes and focus on my breath and acknowledge what kind of breath I'm taking. Like, is that a long breath in or a quick breath in? Uh, long, slow breath out or rushed breath out, and then I'll kind of move to different parts of my body, like my heart, see what my heart's doing, and if I can slow it down a little bit. I just try to pay attention to what's going on inside, but 
you know, get my mind out of the way and just tune out. We can actually yeah. tell our hearts to slow down. I was in a psychology class in college and we hooked up this heart monitor. Oh, yeah. We did this test and no joke, this kid at the front of the class, he, he, you know, the teacher's like, all right, tell your heart to slow down. And we, by using breathing techniques, I think he lowered it by like yeah. 12 beats per minute. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just relaxation. You know, if you're, if you're wound up, your heart's going to be going nuts. And if you can calm down and let go of things, it's going to slow down. All right. So you're a numbers guy, Kenny, right? You're a numbers guy. And there's this gentleman in my fantasy football league. That's also a numbers guy. And his comeback for everything is check the stats. He's like, Hey Paul, I beat you this weekend. He's like, yeah, we'll check the stats on last season. And he's always backing it up with these factual numbers. Now, when you quit drinking a guy like you, you probably know how to do some research. What, were the stats? Did you do any research? You're like, well, where am I on the bell curve? Do I even have a chance of this? Do you know anything about the stats? I, you know, I, I have not had a chance to look into research that's been done. I mean, I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and a few have mentioned addiction, but I've never like looked at the peer-reviewed literature on how successful uh, various things are. I do. So, I mean, my experience is basically based on uh, the people that I see in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's probably a pretty biased uh, sample full of doom and gloom because the people who stick around there are the people who are worst off and need to need the most help. Well, that's one way to look at it. Kenny, we have reached the rapid-fire round. If you could answer these questions, okay. we'll 30 to 60 seconds. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Kenny, besides sleeping through class, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, my worst memory would be when I was visiting my mom for Christmas, and I got a call from my roommate saying, we can't put up with your drinking anymore. You need to find a place to live, a, a new place to live. And, well, she actually felt bad about that and called me back the next day and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'd rather put up with you and help you than then find a new roommate. But I mean, in that moment, I think it was buzzed when I got that phone call and I just wanted to kill myself. It felt like my whole life fell apart. Yeah. Still not a fun call to get. And next question, no. Kenny, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating maybe you can't control your drinking? That My oh shit moment was that morning when I realized I was drunk and had just missed my class the first time. Kenny, what is your plan moving forward in sobriety? My plan moving forward is to just keep doing what I've been doing. So, so I mean, I, I, AA isn't as big a part of my recovery as it used to be, but I still uh, sit in a meeting or two on the weekends, and I have a, I'm the treasurer of my home group, so that keeps me involved and accountable. So I'm going to keep doing that. Nice, Kenny. And then what is the best piece of advice you've heard, and then follow that up with some advice for someone who'd like to quit drinking? The best advice that I got was when I was pretty new to uh, recovery, a guy in AA would always say, just don't drink. And I thought that was terrible advice at the time, but that's, really what <laughs> that's all you got, to. man. Awesome. And it, yeah. And so, but what I would tell someone who is, who thinks they might have a problem or be, be drinking too much, I would say, just go connect with someone, find someone else who also has struggled with drinking and get to know them, see what they can tell you about them and about yourself. 
Kenny, I remember hearing that same piece of advice. Hey, just don't drink. And I was like, man, you must have the wisdom of a thousand year old man because that that's just ground shattering. But in the end, it's white knuckling. But sometimes you got to do that. Just don't drink. And before we depart, Kenny, and give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. <laughs> you might be an alcoholic if you've ever almost fallen in a campfire and didn't know about it until your friends told you the next morning. Nice. You can die that way, I've heard. Man. <laughs> yeah, I bet you could. Jesus. <laughs> well, Kenny, thanks for helping me stay sober, and thanks for sharing your morning with us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Paul. Before we hear our life hack, let's hear from Cafe Ari. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. I love this life hack. It's simple, but it makes a lot of sense. Dr. Daniel Levetin says making decisions is exhausting. They cause stress. And studies show, if it's a small decision or a big decision, it doesn't matter. They cause the same amount of stress and trepidation for the human body. So, here's the life hack. Eliminate a lot of small decisions. Those decisions that I no longer have to make are something like this. Should I drink tonight? How many am I going to drink tonight? What kind of alcohol am I going to drink tonight? What days of the week am I going to drink? What liquor store do I go to now so they don't realize that I'm an alcoholic? How can I dispose of all my empty beer bottles without making noise in the dumpster? How do I sneak booze into the movie theater? Am I going to keep the lid on at the wedding this evening? How do I control my f- drinking. You've probably heard people say they've got more energy now that they don't drink. And I can tell you firsthand, I've got a hell of a lot more energy now that I don't drink. And that's a pretty good reason why. I no longer have to waffle over these simple decisions. I just don't drink. That made life a hell of a lot easier. I've got more energy to start a recovery cafe here in Bozeman, Montana. Well, that's still in the works, but you get the point. So recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 